there, there's a reason why uh, medicine is has been practiced in the Jewish tradition for thousands of years. There's a reason why my son, the doctor, uh, so to speak, is uh, is is one of the most uh, sought after things across the millennia. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome back to another episode of the Karim Podcast. Um, before we jump into this week's episode, uh, we just wanted to convey our sincerest thank you uh, to all of you, the listener. Uh, the Karim Podcast has been on the air now uh, for just over two years and the Karim Podcast network uh, has been growing. And over the last two years, you know, we've topped the Apple charts a number of times. We have hundreds of thousands of listeners worldwide um, over the past. I think we're now up to episode 50 something. Um, and it would be nothing uh, if it weren't. Uh, for all of you. Uh, And so we are so, so grateful uh, for you downloading, tuning in, uh, rating, subscribing, uh, reviewing, uh, all the things you've been doing to show your support. Um, We are really, truly very, very grateful. And we hope that we can continue to put out more amazing podcasts for you uh, as the years go on. Um, So to this week's episode, uh, Aryeh and I were joined by Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman, MD, um, who is a professor of emergency medicine and professor of bioethics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, um, where he teaches Jewish medical ethics uh, and is an attending physician in emergency medicine um, at Montefiore Medical Center. Um, Rabbi Reichman, Rabbi Dr. Reichman, uh, is also the uh, Isaac and Bella Tendler Chair of Jewish Medical Ethics at Yeshiva University. And then he joined us this week uh, to talk about his new book, The Anatomy of Jewish Law, a fresh dissection of the relationship between Jewish medicine, medical history, and rabbinic literature. Um, Rabbi Reichman, Rabbi Dr. Reichman's book um, is unlike uh, any other uh, uh, medical halacha book uh, in that it's not talking about what a doctor can and cannot do. It's not talking about um, you know, the ethical uh, dilemmas doctors face uh, on a daily basis, um, but rather he looks at uh, rabbinic me- medical uh, literature uh, from you know, previous centuries, uh, millennia even, um, and uses that to build an approach uh, to how we can uh, look at historic uh, rabbinical um, approaches to medicine uh, or decisions uh, involving medical issues um, and how that affects uh, how we look at medicine today. Uh, the book is really, really fantastic. You can hear Ari and I effusing about it, um, potentially even ad nauseum uh, <laughs> throughout the episode. Um, but it was a really, really fascinating conversation with Rabbi Dr. Reichman. Um, I think anyone who is not a doctor but has had conversations with um, Jewish doctors I think there are a few of them. Um, you know that they have some of the most interesting approaches, ideas, uh, and stories. And Rabbi Rechman was very, very generous uh, in sharing them with us uh, for this week's episode. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right in. We are delighted to be joined on this episode of the Quorum Podcast by Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Reichman, thank you so much for joining us. So I guess just to get us started... For those people who have not, maybe maybe they're still in the middle of your books, they haven't yet got to the author bio. Um, can you tell our listeners a little about about yourself, where you grew up, how you came to be Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman today? Uh, I grew up in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, my father, Elva Shalom, uh, was a rabbi in Wisconsin for some uh, 50 years. Uh, my early education was in Milwaukee. I went to high school in uh, Skokie, the yeshiva, as it's called. Uh, then, uh, then went to YU. I went to Yeshiva Kotel. 
uh, did my medical training at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, uh, did my smicha at, uh, at REITs, and, uh, and have been practicing uh, emergency medicine for, uh, for many years. Uh, and actually, I'm, I'm still at my very first job of emergency medicine at Montefiore Medical Center. Uh, my, my interest in medical halacha evolved from my time in medical school, uh, as did my interest in the relationship or interrelationship between the medical halacha and the uh, medical history. And so I think that leads, leads into our next question. Your new book, The Anatomy of Jewish Law, has a really novel approach to sort of other medical halacha books that are out there. It's not talking about, you know, can a doctor do X, Y, Z? Can, uh, you know, can a patient undergo certain procedures? But rather it's looking at the, I suppose, the evolution of, uh, of medical halacha throughout the ages. Can you talk a bit about of what led you to, to write this book? What, what really drew you to sort of take this angle and this approach to, to medical halacha? Uh, yeah, thank you so much for that question because uh, really the question is what this book is not. Um, someone picks up a book about medicine and halacha these days, they assume that it's going to be a book about uh, uh, the halachic issues of transplant, the halachic issues of abortion, for example, you know, apropos of the recent uh, Supreme Court decisions. Um, that is not the case here. This book is not a conventional, if you will, uh, medical halacha or Jewish medical ethics uh, work. There are some excellent works. Uh, uh, one that comes to mind is uh, Rabbi Dr. Abram Steinberg's Encyclopedia of Jewish Medical Ethics, uh, Nishmat Avraham. Those are extraordinary works, uh, purely halachic works about the, the practice of, of medicine today. Uh, this work is really a fundamentally different work. It's, it's an analysis of... Uh, of the understanding of medicine, of the human body uh, throughout the centuries, uh, anatomy, physiology, therapeutics, uh, as it was understood in general society and, and how that understanding is reflected in Chazal and rabbinic literature throughout the centuries. Uh, how I came to, to become interested in this particular topic, I, I was uh, doing an elective in medical school in London, there is an institute called the Welcome Institute for the History of Medicine, uh, and uh, and I, I was interested in history, uh, history of medicine, general history of medicine. So I uh, I did an elective there. It's uh, it's uh, one of the premier institutes in this field, uh, and I came to the realization. Uh, I also had an interest at that time in, in medical halacha, and I'm learning makoros that date back to the times of the Gemara, to the Middle Ages, to the Renaissance. Uh, and I came to the realization that, that the understanding of medicine in those days uh, was radically different than our understanding of medicine today. Uh, and if you want to even simply understand the, the text of a chuva written in the 1700s about anatomy or about uh, the heart or about the lungs or about the definition of death, for example, uh, the only way you can really understand it is to know what was understood at the time it was written. Could you give a, just, just a quick example of older, you know, medieval understandings of say, the function of the heart? Is there something that sort of really stands out to you as, you know, potentially Chazal completely misunderstanding what our body does and then making a halakhic decision based on that that we just can't rely on today, or even we can rely on today despite their understanding? Right, right. So, so uh, let me let me uh, give you a more general response to that. So, 
uh, let's say uh, you had a recent podcast from current actually with Dr. Bacheva Maslow, um, a, a wonderful podcast on, on infertility in, in halacha today. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, very fascinating topic, uh, by the way, with, with much to discuss. Mm. Uh, one of my major interests also is the world of contemporary halacha. So, so the world of fertility and artificial insemination, surrogacy, surrogate motherhood, uh, uh, things like that. Uh, there's, there's much to discuss to t- today. Um, but in, in, in looking through Hazal's understanding of reproductive anatomy and reproductive physiology, you will find some curious notions that the modern reader may not be so familiar with. So, for example, in the Parsha of Kitazria, uh, that's actually a fertile, if you will, uh, area for the discussion of, of, of reproductive anatomy and physiology. Many, many Rishonim uh, use the first Yupsukim of Parsha's Kitazria to, uh, to share an analysis of anatomy, physiology, uh, and one of the discussions even is is the very nature of zera. What's uh, who has zera, and how does that zera contribute to the makeup of a child? How does that reproductive seed contribute to the makeup of, of a child? The most basic aspect of, of human reproduction. Uh, now the Gemara says shloshah shutfin yeshba'adam. There's three partners in in, uh, in procreation, if you will. There's the uh, the husband, there's the wife, and there's a kaddish baruch Hu. Uh, and it says uh, the man creates the or contributes the white substance. The woman creates the red substance. The the odem, um, and there are extensive debates in in rabbinic literature about what exactly the female contribution was. Uh, so the only way to really understand those is to appreciate that those exact debates were going on in the world around them in the Middle Ages and and the Renaissance. Uh, historically, for example. The, the male contribution reproduction was, was always known because it was emitted outside the body. Mm-hmm. The female contribution to conception was not known. Uh, and as, as, as a result, it was only theorized what exactly the female contribution was. In, in, in uh, many scientists believe that female contribution was the menstrual blood, the amida. And why is that? Because a woman stops menstruating during the course of pregnancy. And they theorized, so nine months, a woman doesn't have a menstrual flow. Where does that dam go? Where does that right. blood go? So, so the secular scientists assumed that it actually goes into the composition of the fetus, that the fetus is comprised of that menstrual blood. Um, so you will find these kinds of notions, uh, and, and in the book I go to this, uh, go through this in a very detailed fashion. But you'll you'll find uh, all these kinds of notions reflected in in Chazal, um, even the very origin of uh, of sperm. So, for example, there was a a theory. That uh, that sperm came from the brain and directly went through the spinal cord into the repro- into the reproductive organs. Uh, so if you sustained head trauma, for example, it would render you infertile. Um, so uh, you'll find that uh, uh, you'll find that that theory expressed in uh, in some rabbinic sources. And even with respect to anatomy, there's a very curious anatomical um, notion which uh, to which uh, an entire chapter is devoted in the book. Uh, with respect to, to human female anatomy, uh, also you'll find in the sources of, uh, uh, of Tazria uh, this notion that the, the female uterus, the womb, contains seven chambers. There are three chambers on the right, three chambers on the left, and one in the center. And there was a belief that if a woman 
conceived a child from the three chambers on the right, it would be a male child. If she conceived it uh, from the three chambers on the left, it would be a female child. And you can probably guess that if she conceived a child from the center chamber, uh, it would be a, uh, an androgynous, mm-hmm. a hermaphrodite, both the male and female. Uh, by the way, androgynous, andro, like andrology, is male, and genus, like gynecology, is, uh, is female. Uh, so you find this notion uh, expressed in rabbinic literature for, uh, for a few hundred years. You will not find this idea in the Gemara uh, or in the Gaonim. And the reason you won't find it there uh, is because it was not prevalent in the secular world. In the general world, the idea was only conceived, again, excuse the pun, in the, uh, in the Middle Ages and, and only lasted a few hundred years until until the the uh, 1500s when it was disproved with the uh, with the more systematic dissection of the uh, of the human body now now to be sure uh, it, it's important to realize that in in many of these cases the rabbis themselves are quoting it in the name of the secular mm-hmm. physicians so they will say you know katuv hateva i mean besefer hateva or Besefer uh, um, So they're not, they're not quoting this notion as a notion of Chazal per se, uh, although there are some anatomical and physical, physiological notions which may be uh, unique to, uh, to Chazal, uh, but, uh, but many of, the, of these notions, the medical notions, the physiological anatomical notions, are, are explicitly mentioned in the names of, uh, of contemporaneous uh, men authorities. I mean, there, there are some that would say that suggesting that Chazal and the Gemara or even like the Roshonim to suggest that they, that, that, you know, descriptions or the way they talk about things in the natural world and suggesting that they've got it wrong, that that, you know, reflects a lack of or, you know, there's, there's something inherently wrong in saying that, you know, Chazal are wrong. How would you say your response kind of, or your approach responds to that view? Sure. So, so the, that, that is a very weighty theological issue. Uh, you know, wading into those waters can be a little dangerous. Um, uh, what, my, what my book really does, you know, I, I am not a posake, and I don't uh, profess necessarily say, to say what the, what the theological or even halachic implications are of many of the things uh, that I wrote in the book. Uh, but it really is a... Uh, uh, is a work showing uh, explicitly that many, many of these theories find their expression outside of rabbinic literature. Uh, and, and there's clearly a correlation between these theories being ex- expressed in rabbinic literature and, uh, and these theories uh, you know, finding themselves in the, in the general secular world. There, there are those who say uh, there's the gamut in, in the the, the general approach to, the, to this or the general topic is called Nishtana Teva, the area of Nishtana Teva has nature changed. Uh, and people say, you know, uh, were Chazal, uh, you know, quote, I uh, you know, don't even like to use the term wrong, but were Chazal wrong in terms of their medical analysis? Uh, and if so, how, how do we deal with that? So uh, there are those who say, and there, as, you, as you can well imagine, there's, there's a gamut, and this is a very expansive uh, discussion, and uh, so two, two people that, that have uh, represent extremes on this topic are uh, Rabbi Meiselman 
who has written extensively on this, and uh, and uh, Rabbi Slifkin, right. uh, who have written extensively on this, and um, and for those interested more in that topic, I, I would I would definitely direct you to those uh, to those readings. But uh, it goes from the extreme of of everything uh, in the entire corpus of uh, of medical um, information is. Uh, is given me p uh p akarish barco to moshe rabbeinu halachal moshe mitzinai to uh you know the other end of the spectrum or moving farther away from that spectrum is that uh uh you know like expressed by shimshon rafal harish like expressed by uh by the uh avram ben arambam that uh that uh the rabbis were rabbis and they were extraordinarily brilliant rabbis and were well versed in rabbinic literature they were not uh, they were not, although some were in fact, but most were not scientists or physicians. And they, like we today, rely heavily on, on the literature of their time. And they could not be expected to know or anticipate things that would only be known in the distant future. Uh, they simply uh, you know, believed to a large extent what the contemporaneous physicians uh, taught, what was in the textbooks, what, what all the physicians of the time were learning, uh, and they acted accordingly, and they passed in their halacha accordingly. Uh, and, that's, uh, and, that's, uh, and that, I think, that position probably is more reflected in the, uh, in the content of this book. Uh, you, you will see, uh, you know, time and time again, the rabbis referring again explicitly to uh, to contemporaneous theories, be it from assisted, be it from fertility, be it from physiology of the the workings of the of the lungs, the workings of the heart, uh, the workings of the brain, uh, the definition of death, you know, across the whole spectrum of human physiology and across the whole spectrum of time, uh, you'll see uh, you'll see that uh, reflected in this book. Well, I think I mean what I think is interesting about what you're saying is that. It allows us to take a new, I guess, a new language or approach to it, which is rather than saying, well, Chazal are wrong because they've said something which we now know is wrong. It's saying, well, actually, they were really right for what was known on those topics at the time. They were in tune or in line with what was known about, you know, the research that was available to them in the time that they lived. Right. No, and actually, thank you for for clarifying that. It's not. It's not only not a gnai. It's not. It's not a negative comment. In Lehebech, it's it's a, it's a shvach. Uh, you will find many countless examples in this book that Chazal knew the very very latest of science of their time, uh, and they consulted when they had when they had shilas that dealt with uh, with new issues. They they consulted with uh, uh, with physicians. Um, you know, w- w- one of the uh, one of the interesting topics, uh, and, and this may take us into a, a slightly different field, but, uh, but w- one of the interesting chapters in terms of consultation, and I, I often use this as an example to show that uh, you know at every stage throughout history, uh, and and it's more challenging today, but but uh, but nonetheless was required at every stage of history. When rabbis passed in medical issues, they had to consult with uh, physicians. Uh, I mean, today, obviously, when you're determining the definition of death, you know, the consultation is going to be a little more complex uh, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, the transplantation of the human uterus, for example, which uh, I'll share with you a fascinating historical chapter, perhaps a little later, uh, that, that also you have to understand the, the, the mechanics of the procedure, 
in order to uh, to render to render inappropriate uh, to render inappropriate psak. But but throughout history, the rabbis have invariably uh, availed themselves of of uh, medical um, of medical consultation. And in fact, uh, and I'll return to the the case I was referring to in a minute. But uh, but the, I think it's the very last or second to last chapter in the book. Is um, is Rav Yonis and Ibishitz in the uh, the selective deference of Rav Yonis and Ibishitz to uh, to medical expertise, uh, and it shows a number of different areas where Rav Yonis and Ibishitz uh, deferred to medical um, expertise, where, uh, where in some cases he actually didn't, and uh, uh, and and I show that it, it depends on what the halachic issue is. It depends on what the uh, the sources in Chazal reflect about it, but in a number of cases, uh, he explicitly uh, sends a, uh, letters to to medical schools or to physicians. Uh, and one of the more famous cases we have is a, is a famous case of the so-called heartless chicken, the case which was first presented to the Chacham Tzvi, of Ashkenazi, um, in the in the 1600s, where a woman had a, a chicken. Which, uh, which, uh, when she shechted the chicken and she was preparing it, uh, she noticed the chicken was missing a heart. So she went to uh, she went to the chacham tzvi and said, "Is the chicken kosher? I don't see there's a there's a heart in the chicken." Uh, so he said, uh, so he investigated further and, and he found out in fact she had a cat in the house, and the assumption was that the cat had actually eaten the heart of the chicken. And he asked her. You know, was this chicken functioning properly? Was it uh, walking around before and looked healthy? He goes, yes, absolutely. So he said, there's no humanly possible way that this chicken would have been without a heart if it was a healthy-looking chicken before. He, he actually went on a, a, a lengthy chuva discussing cardiac physiology, many, many pages, discussing cardiac physiology um, and, the, and the importance of the heart both for the animal and Nital Alev, we'll leave for another time, but that is a fascinating discussion. Um, but this tshuva has been invoked in a modern discussion about the determination of death today, whether, whether uh, someone who sustains a condition called brain death could be, it would be considered halachically dead, or, uh, because in those cases the heart is still beating or is required to sustain cardiac death for the heart to stop beating in order for someone to be halachically dead. So, uh, so that, that, that is a major topic. But in its time, uh, that tshuva sp- uh, spawned many, many responses. And one of those was of Jonas and Ibishitz. Uh, and, as, and as many of, of our listeners will know, Jonas and Ibishitz got into a protracted and prolonged famous battle uh, with, with the Chacham Tzvi's son, of Yaakov Emden, uh, and that uh, that is something of which I'm sure there have been many, and will continue to be uh, to be many podcasts. Um, but Rav Yonis and Ibishitz, in discussing this tshuva of the Chacham Tzvi, uh, wrote a letter to the medical faculty of the University of Halle in Germany, uh, and asked him, "Is it possible to uh, for a chicken to live without a heart?" And, uh, and is it possible, perhaps, that the human body can have something which doesn't look like a heart, but serves the same function as the human heart? Uh, and it's very interesting, Chuva. He actually cites the entire Chuva in his, uh, in his work. Um, and you will, uh, I, I actually uh, thought it would be interesting to see if I could track down the original archival reference 
in the University of Halle to this tshuva. So I wrote the University of Halle archives, and I said, do you have a record of this particular tshuva? And I, and I really was a shot in the dark. The time, because it's not, uh, I, I had no idea what time it would have been. I used the first printing of the uh, crazy place wherein, wherein it appears in the works of Vivianus and Ivishitz, as uh, as a benchmark, and I, and I said, do you have any any question for, you know, that might resemble this in the archives? And, and just a few days later, the archivist wrote me back, uh, and he sent me the original wow. handwritten German um, of the uh, of this uh, tshuva, this question of Rav Yonason Ibishitz, um, and uh, he said it's a question from the Jewish community about it about the slaughter of a chicken. Uh, and uh, <laughs> it was absolutely, absolutely remarkable to receive that, to receive that record. And uh, just on a tangent, and again, I apologize, probably not so relevant to our discussion, but, but uh, this archival find uh, solves a, a longstanding, albeit minor issue in the end in Ibishit's controversy. Uh, many people thought uh, not many people, one, one Ruben Margolius actually, uh, was of the opinion that this very debate, this very tshuva, was one of the things that sparked the the entire debate between Rav Yaakov Emden and Rionis and Ibishitz, because Rionis and Ibishitz, in a sense, was attacking Rav Yaakov Emden's father, the Chacham Tzvi. So how could he, how could he do such a thing uh, by uh, by attacking his tshuva? Uh, so so my discovery revealed that uh, this tshuva to to Hala and this this uh, section from the Crazy Placey was actually it uh, was actually written very shortly before Jonas and Ivishitz's death uh, long long after the beginnings of this uh, of this controversy so it pretty much uh, put the nail in the coffin of this uh, of this theory uh, that that was the cause of of the Ivishitz uh, end in controversy but uh, but but to return to our uh, uh, to our point uh, the point really is that that uh, um, albeit selectively, Jonas and Ibishitz deferred to uh, to medical expertise and wrote even the medical faculty of the University of Halle, which at that time was the was the major university at the time. You mentioned that this would be a, a topic of many books and podcasts in the future. One of those books, of course, is uh, Mavericks, Mystics, and False Messiahs, published by the Toby Press uh, by Ray Penny Dunner. I think he also he perhaps touches on it. I'm not sure, but it, it's very good. It's a good podcast that we recorded a couple of years ago. Uh, and a very good book as well. Um, yes, phenomenal, phenomenal <laughs> work. Really, really remarkably entertaining and extraordinarily well-researched. Right. Delightful read. Um, so just on, on this topic of, of rabbinic consultation of uh, doctors and, and sort of the, uh, the medical experts of, of their time, there's another really wonderful section of the book, um, which I think sort of brings to the fore some of these issues you know, as well, you know, when, when uh, Rabbi Yonatan Ibshitz is, is asking questions about whether a, a chicken or a person could live without a heart or with, live without something that looks like a heart, you know, these don't necessarily have, in the moment, don't actually have sort of broad-reaching um, consequences. But, of course, uh, we've hopefully come to the end of, of uh, a period of history um, where real-time medical and halakhic decisions um, are affecting people all over the world. Um, and of course, so you, you have a section of the book about um, you know, the COVID-19 and pandemics throughout the, throughout the ages. And you know, so we all know in our time that you know, 
rabbis and our our halachic decisors were consulting with medical experts, sometimes just, you know, the doctor in the shul, but often with whether it be the CDC or, um, you know, government, governmental uh, health bodies and health authorities, um, looking at pandemics uh, through a, a, a halachic lens. What are some of the things that sort of you came across? What are some of the lessons that you sort of saw from history that either repeated themselves over the last couple of years or ways the last couple of years drastically differ uh, from previous pandemics? Uh, there, there, uh, the one thing which comes out from from the chapter in the book is is uh, there is an extraordinary amount of commonality, uh, remarkable commonality between our experience of this current pandemic and uh, and the experience of previous uh, previous pandemics. One of the the uh, noteworthy things from us as Torah observant Jews uh, is the is the luxury, you know, based on our, our media and. Uh, and things like this, podcasts and, uh, and internet capability, uh, we we experience the sock of Rabbanim with respect to COVID literally in real time from the comfort of our uh, bedrooms, of our offices, of our kitchens, uh, listening to to the likes of Herschel Schechter, Shlita, Asher Weiss, Shlita, uh, and many, many others, uh, poskening very weighty, complex issues almost in real time. Uh, which is something uh, which which we may not appreciate uh, in in the previous pandemics. There certainly were poskim who poskim issues related to pandemics, but uh, it, it uh, they would have likely uh, rendered those decisions to the person who asked the question. Uh, they would be the only one who would know that answer. Maybe maybe the posik would write it down in a tshuva safer, which would be published years later, and even then it would be buried in a tshuva safer of hundreds of tshuvas. Um, now we have uh, works of Herschel, uh, Schechter, Schlita had, had put together hundreds of pages. His, uh, um, his P.S.K. Corona and Russia Weiss uh, has a 600-page published book just on, on P.S.K. Corona. Um, so it's really uh, it's really a remarkable difference between the two. But but uh, a number of things that that uh, that come to the fore. Uh, even things like uh, masks and isolation and quarantine. Um, are, are issues that the communities have faced before. There have been plagues. So one of the prominent ones for which we have remarkable records is a plague in 1631 in, uh, in northern Italy, in particular in Padua, where we have a uh, really an extraordinary diary uh, of, the, of that plague, which lasted around a year, just a few months less, called Olam Hafuch. Uh, world in upheaval or, or overturned world, where Avram Catalano, who was a physician and administered to both halachic and, and financial and medical aspects of the, of the Jewish ghetto at that time, um, was uh, wrote down a daily diary about what it was like to administer to the Jewish community. Uh, and so issues of quarantine, issues of uh, sadly many, many people died, uh, what it was like uh, interacting with the government to uh, they they uh, they would be thrown into prison if they were found outside, and they had a ga- literally a, a gallows uh, outside the Rome ghetto during another uh, another pandemic. That if uh, you violated some of the edicts of the government, you would be hanged. 
um, if you if you were found congregating in public places during during the times of the plague. Um, but the the one interesting aspect, and you talked about in terms of the interrelationship between posthum and, and medical information, is that the gadolium time and time again throughout throughout plagues in history, uh, not only in this plague in these plagues in northern Italy, but in the cholera, there were there were many cholera plagues spanning the 1800s and 1900s. Uh, where Rabbi Kiva Eger of Yisrael Salanter uh, dealt extensively with halachic issues of plague. Um, many people probably were familiar uh, with the Psaka Rabbi Kiva Eger in terms of how to deal with davening during the plague, uh, which sounds very, very similar to what we've encountered today. He said that during the weekday davening, there shouldn't be more than 15 people at any minion. And, uh, and not only that, he said you should have the police, the secular police, to, uh, to monitor to make sure somebody doesn't go into uh, to shul unless they're, they're designated for that minion. You should continue to rotate minyanim throughout, throughout the entire uh, morning, and the uh, same should be for mincha, same should be for, for marav. Many people turn to those chuvas as, uh, as a template. And when he, when he talked about what to do for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, uh, he said, uh, I mean, they didn't have the, the six-foot uh, social distancing that, uh, that we had, but they, they thought it was sufficient to have one seat distance in shul. So they decided that, that uh, the shul was obviously full normally for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, so they would dive in with one seat uh, empty. Every other seat would be empty. And you, by lottery, you would choose um, which, which yum, yum of you would come to shul for it. So if you got ticket A, you'd come for Rosh Hashanah. If you got ticket B, you'd come to show for Yom Kippur. Uh, and he uh, any 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 discussed which uh, those those of us remember for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur exact questions of how much davening needs to be said, right. uh, how long the davening should be. Um, he said explicitly the chazan shouldn't uh, dreitzach with uh, negunim. You shouldn't have any hosafos. Uh, and he said, you know, give you perspective how things have changed over the years. He said the davening should be cut down significantly to five hours. Five hours. Um, our davening, you know, if you if you recall, the most postmen said our davening would be cut down to two hours, and that's even that was more it was more than we can handle. Um, and uh, even with respect to minyanim, for example, the you know one of the most widespread uh, issues which every posik across the globe weighed in was the uh, was the mirpeset uh, minyan. What's uh, the balcony? Balcony minyanim. Uh, you know more so near to Israel here than America, but here they had, they had uh, more backyard minyan as opposed to the balcony minyanim. Um, but uh, but the, the the title of the you know, and I'll share with you an interesting fact. But the title of the chapter is called "Precedented Times." So in general, we call this pandemic unprecedented. That's one of the words which uh, returned to our vocabulary during the span of these last two years. This everything is unprecedented, never before seen any anything like this in the entire history of humankind. So you'll see time and time again in that chapter, from masks to social distancing to davening to uh, to many many aspects. Almost everything is precedented, and this balcony minyanim is also precedented. So the uh, the chida was asked the following interesting shaila: said you have two groups of people. One one is uh, four four uh, groups uh, four people in one house and six people in another house, and the question is, can they be mitzari for a minion? So the question is, what do you mean? Why don't the four people in one house just go to the six people in the other house and they'll be mitzari for a minion? 
So the reason they couldn't do that is because the four people were in, in, in an isolation house. They'd been, they'd been exposed to plague. Uh, and that house is called a lazaretto, was the Italian name for the plague. So they were in a lazaretto, which is the term that the Fidel uses, and, uh, and they couldn't go. So he said, this is analogous to our balcony mignon. If you have social distancing, we couldn't get together. And so he said, as, as long as they could see each other and hear each other, even in, and they physically weren't capable of, of joining them, he actually passed in that particular scenario. It would be mutter for them to be mitzdarev, uh, to be mitzdarev for the minion. Um, and, and there are many, many other uh, you know, such examples. But, but the one thing which, which came through over and over again is that the, the Godoli Haposkim mentioned explicitly, it's not inferential, this is what the, the so-called CDC of our time says, and this is what we have to follow. Uh, and, and in terms of this is the only way we can act as a Jewish community. Is to is to defer to the uh, to the medical knowledge of our day, integrate that knowledge, and uh, and render our peace halacha accordingly. I mean, you've, you very kindly mentioned before a uh, previous episodes we recorded with uh, Doctor Batsheva Maslow about fertility and halacha, and and it, I mean, that is uh, as well. It's a fascinating topic, and, and I only wish we could have spent so much more time talking about it with her. Um, but one of the things that she said, um, which we weren't able to to, to go deeper into is how in the 70s, 80s, the rabbinic response to uh, IVF and fertility treatment was to be very, to try and keep it at arm's length and to be wary of it and to say, you know, we, we don't understand, so we're going we're gonna to say no um, for now. Um, but very, very quickly that stance changed. And now, you know, almost in its entirety, we we, we are accepting of everything and we, we do everything we can to, to ensure that people are... Uh, have access to and are able to have from a halakhic point of view um to have the different treatments that are available to us can you can you tell us about any other examples or are you aware of any other things where either that response has happened as well where the halakhic approach to something has changed so drastically so quickly um again as well at the beginning of the pandemic before of the covid pandemic before we knew what was going on it was very much like no shuls will stay open and then you know the next day actually no we'll close them um and things like that or where the rabbinic response to something has been unchanged um, in the me- in the medical field, where the rabbinic have said, like, we don't understand it, we don't know, we're not sure what's going on, so we're going to say no, and, and it sort of has remained that way, perhaps even in the face of, of uh, medical evidence to, to suggest that it, it might be worth changing. So the, the, those kinds of, of issues are, uh, you know, have been manifest in, in areas like evolution, the understanding of evolution, um, and the understanding of uh, you know, uh, in astronomy, you know whether the uh, the world, the Earth is the center of the universe, or whether the Sun is the center of the universe, and uh, you know radical paradigm shifts, which have uh, you know forced uh, forced the world to reevaluate, and have also forced the Jewish community to reevaluate. Those are not so much covered in the, in this book this is really more in the in the medical sciences um and more in uh, in anatomy and physiology but uh but it is true with respect to um assisted reproduction uh the the uh, well let, let me take another example let's take transplantation maybe maybe a good parallel is transplantation so uh in in the initial stages of of human organ transplantation 
But the very first of organ transplants was actually the cornea, the uh, cornea of the eye, the lens of the eye, not the lens of cornea, and uh, back in the 40s and the 50s. And there, the question was, there were major impediments. Nibul hames, desecration of the body, hanos hames, deriving benefit from the body, chi of klura, obligation to bury the body, uh, whether it was a question of pikuach nefesh. Uh, and then, and then the, the medical world moved into um, transplanting the human kidney, kidney transplants. And there, there was a major hesitation at the beginning. And, and the nature of that hesitation was uh, was the risk involved because it's a brand new procedure and as a result of it's a brand new procedure it, it simply wasn't known whether the risks are, uh, um, are 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 worth taking or not worth taking so many poskim like uh, uh, the Minchas Yitzchak and Eliezer uh, Waldenberg and Tzitzeliezer initially poskim that for example to serve as a kidney donor a living kidney kidney donor was usher. Uh, you know, they, they invoked the chuba of the Radbaz, it would be too risky, and uh, someone who would, who would donate would be considered a chassid shota, a pious fool. Um, however, with the passage of time and the improvement of the procedure, uh, organ donation from one living human being to another uh, became extremely widespread, where you fast forward now, in, uh, in 2022, you have a major Jewish organization called Renewal, which, uh, which facilitates organ donations between Jews from uh, people who aren't even related to each other. They're not the mothers, uh, sisters, brothers, uh, fathers. They're people that are just Jews that want to donate, want to help somebody else. There have been, uh, I think, over 700 transplants. So there, there was a stage of initial reticence. Now we are well beyond that stage. Organ transplant is uh, is widely popular, and I don't think there's a single post-sig today that would say it's usser. So that's the landscape of transplantation. And perhaps another area where this will evolve, and now we're at the beginning stages of this, sort of akin to uh, the early stages of organ transplantation, the early stages of assisted reproduction, and that's genetic engineering, uh, which is uh, using CRISPR technology, gene editing the gene editing technology. Now, this is not a part of the book because the book is, uh, doesn't deal so much with, uh, although I will share with you an interesting genetic aspect discussed in the book, that the uh, gene editing is very early in its uh, in its phases now. And there is, is some limited success. And Postgame are a little hesitant to, to, uh, to permit because it's still kind of risky. But who knows, maybe in 20, 30 years from now, it'll be widely used, widely, widely available, and widely, widely accessible. Um, I mean, so is, is so that there, there is an sorry? I mean, is is that sort of uh, drastic shift from you know a, an initial ushering to a, a, a later muttering um, to make up a word? Um, is that perhaps because of the speed at which medical advancement takes place now compared to whatever the seventeen hundreds? Uh, there's no question that that's a factor. And, and by the way, another topic which which uh, which uh, definitely should be placed in this discussion is the definition of death. Uh, so un- until the 1960s, the the only there was only one definition of death, and that's if your heart stopped. There was no other definition of death. Uh, in the late 1960s, 1970s, there evolved a an alternate definition, which was called brain death whereby uh, the, the brain stem stops functioning, a person stops breathing spontaneously, and that can be as a result of, uh, of major trauma. Uh, those patients can be hooked up to a respirator, 
and artificially uh, provided oxygen, and the heart can, can continue to beat. And the, and the medical world determined that if the brain has stopped functioning it's in its entirety, then these patients are considered legally dead. And as such, their organs can be harvested for organ transplantation. Um, now, that itself is, is, uh, is a topic which you will find extensively discussed in the contemporary halakhic literature, probably uh, you know, one of the most contentious, one of the most complicated issues in, in contemporary medical halakha is the, uh, the determination of death. Um, but there has been some evolution over the past few decades in terms of the acceptance of the definition of death, but even though there's been some evolution, that remains very firmly as a continuously debated topic where there are major poskim who uh, accept brain death as halachic death and major poskim who reject brain death as halachic death. That will probably continue into the foreseeable future. One of the chapters in the book actually discusses some of the sources about this exact halachic debate. Uh, and many of these sources are centuries, if not millennia old. So, for example, you turn to a sugya in the Gemara about how death is to be defined. You turn to a Rashi about how death is to be defined. And that, by the way, that, that chuba that we mentioned in the Chacham Tzvi and the Heartless Chicken is also discussed. Um, so when you're discussing these topics, particularly let's take brain death as our example, and, this, and the book really reflects this, uh, you have to understand the, the history of anatomy and physiology from those sources in their own time in order to be able to extrapolate to, to today. So, for example, um, R- Rashi, uh, Rashi holds that you check, the, uh, um, you check the nostrils, you check the heart, uh, and, and, he, uh, and there's a famous Gemara in Yoma that if a person is buried under the rubble, you don't even know if they're buried under the rubble and, and you're, and you're uh, removing the body and you're removing the rubble, you know, at what point it's a Shabbos, you're not allowed to be Michal Shabbos, uh, but for Pikuach Nefesh, you can be Michal Shabbos. At what point do you stop? You can only stop being Michal Shabbos if you're 100% certain that the patient, the person is dead. So you have to either look at the nostrils or you look at the heart. Uh, so in that context, for example, Rashi says... Um, you look at the heart, shenishma so dofekes sham, that his uh, his neshama beats there. So one interpretation, you know, your average person is reading that Rashi will assume you're talking about the soul, the neshama. Uh, but an alternate interpretation is shenishma so dofekes sham. His breathing pulsates there. Why is that important? Because if you if you know contemporaneous physiology, um, uh, contemporaneous with Rashi, and there's an entire chapter in, in the book called the uh, the, uh, the theory of innate heat. This is what they understood. They understood that the respiratory system and the cardiac system were in, interrelated with each other, and they actually believed that when you breathed air into your lungs that air would go directly via a direct tube or conduit to the heart. And would, uh, and they also believed that there was an innate heat in the heart, these flames in the heart that would cause the temperature of the heart to rise, would cause the whole body temperature to be high. And if, uh, like the furnace of a house, which provides your, uh, your temperature in your home. Uh, and if uh, that's how they accounted for the fact that your body temperature was higher than, than the rest of your environment, because there was an innate heat. 
Uh, and uh, and you have to understand this in order to properly understand these sources. And even the Ramban, who is also a physician, by the way, um, uses this to interpret a famous uh, episode in, in the Torah in terms of uh, Yaakov, when he finally, uh, finally found out that Yosef was alive. Um, you know, it says, uh, it says um, I forget the exact Lashon, uh, but it says that his his ruach his ruach was uh, was restored. So he uh, he actually uses the term chom hativi the innate heat had dissipated and Yaakov passed uh, basically syncopized he passed out and uh, they restored his ruach and not the ruach of uh, of Nivua, but li- literally his physical physiological ruach allowed him to 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 breathe again and to uh, and to live again so so uh, there's a lot to unpack in the last uh, few things i just mentioned but the the, the take-home point really um is that an uh, in understanding of pre-modern physiology and anatomy and things like that can give you a much richer understanding of the sources and and prevent you from misinterpreting the sources in their own right and also prevent you from misapplying them to contemporary circumstances where our understanding of, uh, of anatomy and physiology uh, is obviously much different. So looking at perhaps, this might be a question where we're crossing over with medical ethics and halacha and maybe a bit of sociology thrown in there as well for fun. Obviously within certain communities, um, um, Das Torah will always take priority in terms of a halachic question. So if there's even in a medical question, Das Torah will say that question always has to go to the rub. Do you think there's a tendency in, in the modern Orthodox community, almost in reaction to that, to go the other way, to say, in every case, I'm just going to trust my doctor because that's what we do as modern Orthodox Jews. We're modern, so we go by the doctor. Do you think sometimes actually for modern Orthodox Jews, there are still cases where we should be going to, you know, like, post him to asking these questions and do you think maybe that kind of that react is that almost reactionary approach is is taking away the role that you know, me, you know medical halacha plays should play in modern orthodox jewish life uh it's a, it's a very complex question a very complex landscape <laughs> of the interrelationship of patients physicians uh, halacha and medicine, and you you, you really have, have identified um, an issue which which to which there's what comes out of of a, of a book like this, and what really needs to be uh, the way to approach these kinds of things. It, it, what you find is throughout all the centuries there has been uh, and remains, by the way, and should remain a very strong connection and interaction and interrelationship between the medical community and the halacha community. Neither of them can function without the other. By any wild stretch, can a, can a rogue pass an end-of-life issue without a discussion with a doctor about what the case is and, and what, the, what the particulars are? Uh, in no way can your average, uh, average Torah-observant Jew, the Paskin halacha, uh, you know, based on their medical information, uh, and, and he, there are many Torah observant Jews that are not poskim that, that may think that they're poskim, uh, but there's uh, but there's there's no way for the average physician, be they uh, well educated in, in uh, Torah literature, uh, to paskin without uh, deferring to the to the to the breadth of Torah knowledge that a posek brings to the table. 
and and that actually is one of the things that you beautifully see throughout this uh, this book that in every 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 topic every historical stage um, there are uh, there are there is deference to the other that the physicians are in dialogue with the uh, the rabbis the rabbis are in dialogue with the physicians um, and it is simply impossible uh, to to accurately practice medicine and halacha. Uh, without that continuing an ongoing relationship. Uh, you know, I wanted to uh, just sh share with you, you mentioned the Batsheva Maslow's again presentation and some of the exciting advances of, of assisted reproduction. Um, one of the chapters in the book, um, even though it's mostly about history, interestingly talks about transplantation of the human uterus. Uh, and there's another chapter that talks about the transplantation of the, of the human ovary. And I just wanted to briefly share that with you because it's uh, it, it just shows uh, the remarkable longevity, if you will, of uh, uh, of halachic literature, uh, and it's a very interesting example um, of how pre-modern halachic literature can be useful even even today. Uh, so th there was a uh, a question back in 1907, which first appeared in a Hungarian halachic journal called Vayalakit Yosef. And this Rabbi Gordon presented the question for public uh, forum and discussion amongst the, the, the great rabbinic authorities that usually responded in that particular journal. And he said there was a case in England where a woman underwent a transplantation of all her reproductive organs, her uterus, her fallopian tubes, her external genitalia, uh, she, and previously, she was infertile, and after the transplantation, she was able to bear a child. So he asked a number of halachic questions. Is it an issue of cirrus, rendering the woman who, who donated the organs infertile if they're harvested from after death? Is it a question of the nivola um, uh, Who Who's considered, if a child is conceived afterwards, who's considered the halachic mother of the child, the one who donated all the organs or the recipient of the organs? Um, if, if the mother donated to the daughter, is it an Isser Arias of the, of the husband having physical contact with the body of, of, the, of, the, of the mother? I mean, crazy, crazy kinds of questions. So all the posting answered those questions um, as they were asked. So, so what, what, what intrigued me is, is where, where did this case come from? You know, is it, what was it based on? Ovarian transplant. Uh, has not even occurred. The first case of ovarian transplant was only 10, 20 years ago. The first case of uterus transplant was also very, very recently, within the last, uh, within the last few years. So I actually did some uh, digging, and, and I found a remarkable and extraordinary case, which clearly precipitated this entire halachic discussion, which, to be honest, has been forgotten by most practitioners of reproductive technology today. So your average person who's even doing the uterus transplants today, who's doing the ovarian transplants today, has no recollection of this particular case, which, which, which spawned this discussion. And it started back in 1906. In 1906, one year before this journal article, there was an American physician whose name was Robert Tuttle Morris. And what he did is uh, he identified a number, a population of women uh, whose ovaries had been removed back in the early 1900s. If a woman had abdominal pain and they didn't know why, they would just remove her ovaries because they assumed that would be the cause. 
So he had a population of young women in their 20s and 30s who were infertile and went into menopause because their ovaries had been removed. So he had the great uh, wisdom. He said, maybe I can transplant some another ovary into these women's bodies and they can conceive or return to, to a menstrual cycle. So he records a case, one single case in the year 1906, which was, which was published in a journal called the medical record, uh, where he, he, he reports a case study where he himself removed the ovary of one woman for what they thought was a medical reason. And in retrospect, it probably wasn't a medical reason. Then in the other operating room, he took a sliver of ovarian tissue from another patient and walked across, brought it back to the uh, to the woman uh, whose ovaries he had removed, and transplanted that sliver of ovarian tissue into this recipient. Uh, about a year and a half later, that woman returned to her menstrual cycle, and about two years later, she conceived and gave birth to a healthy child. The first recorded case ever of ovarian transplantation. Um, that case clear generated a flurry of literature across the entire globe. Um, and it's funny, you know, if, uh, what, were, what, were, what were the questions? What if the donor was a Protestant and the recipient was a Catholic? That was the kasha that they asked in the, in the literature of those days. What if, uh, you, know, uh, you know, who's considered the, the legal mother of the child? What if the husband of the donor didn't approve of the donation? That does the husband, and they believe that the, the husband owned the, the, the body of the wife, so to speak. So maybe the husband owned whatever progeny would, would, uh, would be born from the recipient's, uh, from the recipient's reproductive system. Um, and and uh, it is clear that this is the question which precipitated the question in the halachic literature. What is fascinating is that the Shoel got the question wrong. The Shoel didn't know the particulars. He assumed that the uterus was transplanted. He assumed that the external genitalia was transplanted. When in fact, just a small sliver of ovarian tissue was transplanted into the abdominal cavity. But because he asked the question in a mistaken fashion, all the posts answered these questions about uterus transplant on the assumption that it was actually done. So fast forward a century later, the uterus transplant actually is done. We now have a wealth of halachic literature discussing the issues. Discussing is it an issue of Sirus? Is it an issue of Chavala? Is it the, what about the issue of Pidyon Haben? A classic fascinating question. Let's say the donor of the uterus already had a male child and gave birth to a child and had a Pidyon event for that child, and then you donate that to the uh, you know to the recipient, and now she has a male child. Is that child going to have a Pidyon event? So it's a it's a fascinating uh, fascinating case of the, of the value of uh, of previous halachic literature. If I could be so bold as to to ask you to introspect a bit i th i think you you've shown us over the course of the last almost an hour that having a mastery or at least you know having a a incredibly broad un understanding of of different elements of of medical halakha medical history makes definitely makes you a more interesting person um but if i could ask how does sort of all of this knowledge that you've acquired both secular scientific and and religious how does being a doctor uh, oh, sorry. How, how does being a a a, a, uh, a thinking Orthodox Jew make you a better doctor? And the other way, how does being a doctor impact and, and make you uh, a better Jew? 
Uh, that's a, that's a wonderful a wonderful question. There's no question that uh, uh, there, there's a reason why uh, medicine is has been practiced in the Jewish tradition for thousands of years. There's a reason why my son, the doctor, uh, so to speak, is uh, is is one of the most uh, sought after things across the millennia. Uh, and there's a reason why the Rambam was a physician. There's a reason why the Ramban was a physician. There's a reason why Yitzhak Lampranti in the Renaissance was a physician. Um, the, the, the ability uh, to, to understand the Teva, to understand the Bria, to understand this human being of mag- magnificent uh, complexity, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu created, uh, to be able to understand that uh, is, is a way of getting closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Is a way of, of really understanding the uh, the workings of the world, uh, and it's it's an enriching aspect. And, and the Rambam says it's a uh, it's a mitzvah to to understand all sciences, uh, to understand the mathematics and its understanding of the world, astronomy, and the, for sure the understanding of the human body and the the normal workings of the human body, the, the pathology of the human body. Um, so that that is is clearly in in some aspect has drawn me to medicine. Uh, that that also has has drawn uh, physicians to the practice of medicine over the millennia, and, and has made it one of these so-called Jewish professions um, across time. You know, as to whether that makes me a, a better physician, you'll you'll have to ask my, my patients about that. But it uh, it definitely enriches uh, enriches my life, um, both my my learning of Torah and my and my practice of medicine. I mean, you've been so incredibly generous with your time, and and you literally have lives to save. So we're not going to keep you for too much longer. Um, I just want to say, I mean, we could. I, there are so much, so many more questions that I want to ask. There's a a, fan, a really fantastic chapter in the book that I think I I spent how long it took me to read it, just annoying my wife reading out passages um, about the conjoined twins. Uh, in Halakha um, is incredible. Uh, sort of uh, the approach to biblical and Talmudic medicine versus today is wonderful. But I'm not going to take any more of your time, and and uh, I just finish off by saying thank you so much uh, for writing the book. Thank you so much for allowing us to publish it, for giving us your time this evening. Um, it's been a really, really fascinating discussion, um, and uh, I, I cannot recommend enough uh, those who haven't. Uh, to go and buy the book uh, those who have to make sure that they take it off the shelf and, and finish reading it it's really really brilliant so uh, Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman thank you so much for your time um, it's been really fantastic thank you so much for the wonderful opportunity to join you greatly appreciate it that's all we have time for this week um, again a big thank you to Rabbi Dr. Edward Reichman um, you can get his book The Anatomy of Jewish Law uh, from karenpub.com and as always when you do so if you enter the promo code podcast at checkout, you can get 10% off your entire order there. Um, if you'd like to reach out to us uh, about anything that we've discussed, even ideas for future podcasts, uh, you can do so uh, via email podcast at corinpub.com uh, on social media at Corin Publishers. Um, we'll be back again soon uh, with another wonderful episode of the Corin Podcast. Um, but until then, uh, goodbye. Goodbye.